Chats from the Blog Cabin. This is your favorite time of the week with your number one one podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know, the show where I virtually invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting about how we can re- reduce the risk of becoming a victim of medical era. Now, I want to give a little bit of background before we go into, before I introduce my guest, Michael. My sister, Karen, who just, she's been gone 26 years, was diagnosed with cancer six weeks after she was diagnosed, she was gone. But the whole time she's been having trouble breathing and everything else. And all the doctors attributed it to her asthma. So her diagnosis could have been caught sooner if they actually had listened to her. So I think this is a very important topic that we're talking about, Michael. So before we get into talking about that, introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself. And then we'll get into talking about medical error. Uh, Well, thank you. Uh, My name is Michael Sachs. Uh, I'm a professor at Arizona State University, where uh, although I am mainly a social psychologist, uh, I am uh, somewhat surprisingly based primarily in the law school. Mm. Uh, Because I try to teach law students uh, about things that social science researchers do. Uh, So they learn about statistics and studies and how to deal with data. That's my main reason for being there. And so what made you decide to write the book, Closing's Death Door? What made you write, want to write that? Um, my co-author and I uh, happened to be at the same conference, which was not specifically on this topic. And while waiting for a conference, uh, for a session to begin, we were chatting. And uh we and what we started chatting about was the problem of medical error, which we both had been observing for some time. I mean, decades. We had been aware of the problem for decades. We thought the law was not doing much with it, and the healthcare industry was actually weakening uh, what was already a weak legal system. And we both discovered that we thought that something different, something better could be done. And we said, why don't we put our heads together and write about it? So you hadn't mentioned the subtitle of the book, which is the part that got uh, Steve Landsman and me going. And that subtitle is Legal Innovations to End the Epidemic of Healthcare Harm. Mm. So we think that the law as it exists is not doing a very good job. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and there is an epidemic of healthcare harm, which we can talk about, and that we wanted to get a conversation going, uh, mostly among professionals in various fields, mm-hmm. healthcare, economics, law, about what could the law do besides trying to bring a lawsuit Mm-hmm. When there is a medical error and someone is harmed, what else could the law do? So we tried to put those out there and uh, 
But we weren't saying those are the answer. Mm. We were saying those are possibilities and we would like to see others uh, get into that conversation uh, because we hadn't seen the healthcare system doing much either. Yeah. I mean, because it seems like nowadays you pick up a paper and you hear either somebody's been switched at birth to the hospital, somebody's legs been taken off wrong, somebody's gone, like charts get mixed up and everything else. So what are some of the ways that we can avoid that though? Uh, well, um, let me give, you gave a few examples. Let me give a couple of more because what I want to, okay. partly what I want to illustrate is how really easy it is for something to go wrong. I'll start by saying every one of us makes numerous mistakes in the course of a day. If we really paid close attention to what we're doing, and then every time we made a little mistake, we wrote it down. At the end of the day, I mean you, me, mm -hmm. everybody. Uh, write it down. Then at the end of the day, look at the list of mistakes. It could be as simple as uh, I started to pour my orange juice into my cornflakes, but mm -hmm. fortunately I caught myself. Or I headed out to the car and forgot the keys, so I had to go back and get the keys. Mm -hmm. Or um, I, uh, um, I'm heading in, a student is heading into school and they grab the wrong book to put in their book bag. So we all make little mm -hmm. mistakes. The problem is that in the healthcare business, little mistakes can be really serious. So I'll give you just a few. Uh, a two-year-old child swallowed a sunflower seed. It went down the wrong pipe and it was stuck there and it was bothering the kid. The mother took the kid to a doctor. The doctor said, uh, I, can, I have an instrument. I can reach down. I can remove it. But this will be very distressing to the child. So what we do is we give the patient some morphine. Mm. Perfectly healthy two-year-old child. For just a moment, the doctor lost sight of the fact that this was a two-year-old and gave the two-year-old an adult dose of morphine. Oh this child became, first went into a coma, but never, never recovered. There was brain damage. And basically that two-year-old would remain a two-year-old for the rest of his life. Uh, another one is uh, a woman is suspected of having breast cancer. So they wanted to do a biopsy, check that tissue and see and figure out for sure. But in the lab where they were analyzing the tissue, someone accidentally put the wrong name label mm -hmm. on the tissue sample and the wrong person was told she had breast cancer and she went and had a mastectomy. And the person who did have the breast cancer was told there's nothing wrong. So her cancer couldn't be treated for a longer period of time. Uh, and then you mentioned left and right. We, uh, mm -hmm. They still get left and right wrong. Anyway, so I just want to underscore that these could be simple little mistakes. It doesn't have to be a big complicated thing. Your sister's was a little more complicated mm -hmm. because it was a diagnosis uh, and they had probably had a number of chances to get it right, but didn't. All right, so you asked, what can the average person do to try to avoid uh, being uh, a medical error? And I've got, a, I've got some suggestions. Some are about what to do before you go into a hospital. 
Okay. Some are what to do in the hospital, some are what to do after the hospital. Though in the example of your sister, you don't have to be in a hospital for these mm-hmm. things to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'll say in general, the uh, before I get into these particular ones, because I'm thinking of your, your sister, asking questions, don't take, uh, don't accept the first answer mm-hmm. you get. If you're not happy with the answer from the first doctor, go see another doctor. Second opinions are fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it is your, you are, you have one life here. You might as well protect it. Um, all right. So before you go into the hospital, my first recommendation is that second opinion. Uh, don't let yourself be rushed into a treatment uh, try to take time. There are things that are emergencies, but not everything's an emergency. And if you took a few more days or a week or two to get a second opinion, mm-hmm. uh, you might be better off. Uh, one example I'll give you is Neil Armstrong, the first human being to set foot on the moon, probably died before his time because he went to a hospital. He was having some heart difficulties. He was examined, and they said, you should have a coronary bypass procedure as soon as possible, like right now. And he did not survive that procedure, Mm -hmm. and he was not getting it at uh, a first-rate place. Uh, So had he taken more time and gone Mm -hmm. to other hospitals and tried to find better surgeons, he, uh, he might have lived longer, which leads to my other uh, suggestion, which is to check on the safety record of the mm-hmm. hospital that you are expecting to be treated in. Uh, there are online ratings that you can look up. The, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services which is the federal agency Mm -hmm. that supervises and writes the checks for Medicare and Medicaid, they have a a good rating system. And there's something called the LeapFrog Group, which was created by a bunch of businesses, large businesses that spent a lot of money on healthcare, and they were disturbed at how often errors would occur, Mm -hmm. uh, which ended up costing them more money. Uh, so they, uh, they've been working on patient safety and they have, uh, I think if, oh, they're, um, well, I think if you Google leapfrog group, you'll get to their webpage and can look at their ratings. Um, you should make sure the hospital is accredited, which you can do by going to qualitycheck.org qualitycheck, that's one word, dot org. Um, Some states post ratings of doctors and hospitals. I would be wary of uh, ratings by patients. A lot of us love our doctors or don't like our doctors, Mm -hmm. whether they really have a good record or not, because uh, we don't necessarily know. Um, so I'd be careful about 
that. Some people have a good bedside manner, but uh, still make too many mistakes. Um, I'm assuming you will jump in and ask me about any of these if you want to. I was, I was asking hear more about it. I was asking. I was gonna. I I actually wrote down, jotted down. Where can you find the safety records? And you, you answered it as oh. soon as they were jotted <laughs> down. I was like, because I, cause, you know, as I talk to people, I make notes because I'm, you know, something really sticks in my head. You know, I want to make sure we address that. But you addressed it right away. So all right, then then we are uh, on the same wavelength. Yes, we are. Um, well, we do need to take a brief commercial break, and then we'll okay. be right back. Sound good? Sounds good. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Homeschooling just got easier and deliciously fun. My new book, Dishing Up Devotions, 36 Faith-Building Activities for Homeschooling Families is a delightful devotional the whole family will love. With encouragement for mom, fun family activities, conversation starters, and simple baking recipes. It's sure to feed your family's faith while building lasting memories in just minutes a week. And we are back chatting with Michael. I hated to interrupt, but I had to put that commercial in because I knew <laughs> you were giving such great tips that we could have kept going and not had the commercial all during the whole thing. So we were talking about things that you can do um, before going into the hospital. And you talked about getting a second opinion, checking the safety record of the hospital and the doctor. Are there any other ones that you do? For well, them? now here's uh Here's another one about before you go into the hospital. Uh, make sure that the procedure that your surgeon is going to perform on you is one that she or he has done many, many times before and continues to perform frequently. Uh, research has found that for most procedures, the best outcomes and the fewest complications arise when the surgeon performing the procedure has considerable experience with the procedure uh, and maintains a schedule of uh, frequently performing it. Some hospitals, not a lot, but some have taken what's called the volume pledge, and that is that they will allow only surgeons who perform a certain minimum number of high-risk surgical procedures to perform those procedures in their hospital. So uh, the more you do something, well, you know, it's sort of like practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I had cataract surgery uh, a couple of months ago, uh, just to give an example of that. And I'm in the, and I'm in the hospital early in the morning and my eye surgeon comes in and uh, to say, hello, here we are, we're going to do it. And I said, uh, boy, it's so early in the morning, uh, I must 
uh, be your first customer today? And he said, well, actually, you're my fifth. He had already done mm -hmm. five. Wow. I wouldn't even have been up by then. So that was a good sign. Do a lot. Um, now, once you are in the hospital, when you go to the hospital, try to have a close friend or family member be with you as much as it is possible to be with you. If you're the patient, you're not going to be in the best yep. shape to be monitoring everyone and everything and thinking clearly. So it's good to have a close friend or relative who can be there for you. They can be your advocate. They can be your eyes, your ears, your brain. They can watch what's happening. They can ask questions. They can take notes. Um, you and that other person should pay close attention to changes in your condition. They can, they can be with you a lot more mm -hmm. than any doctor or nurse can be with you. And if they notice changes like pain, uh, change in your pain, fever, thirst, dizziness, um, they uh, could bring that to the attention of caregivers. And don't be shy. You don't have to be at all mean about it. Mm. You don't have to be a great negotiator. Uh, just ask politely, uh, what's, uh, what's happening here? Uh, what's happening with me? What's, uh, what are you, what are you, could you explain to me what you're doing mm -hmm. and why they might suddenly realize that you're not the patient. They sh were supposed to come in and do that too. Uh, so just tr as much as possible, try to um, understand what's going on and ask and ask about it. If at any point you think something is happening that should not be happening and you are dissatisfied with the responses that your polite questions are getting, almost every hospital has an office of patient advocates or customer service or the, uh, the corporate office. Your, the person who came along with you could go get help from those other people and say, I think something's happening. I could be wrong, but I think something's happening. It shouldn't be. Now, would that go uh, with nursing home too? Sure, sure. A nursing home uh, is less likely to have a patient advocate, but uh, all the rest of it applies. Ask questions, find out. Um, and uh, this, my fifth point is a good illustration of, uh, of that, that uh, you can avoid medication errors. That's one of the easiest things mm -hmm. to go wrong. You can avoid medication errors by asking the, the hospital staff, what is it you are taking, that they're giving you, how much should you be getting, how often, and what is it for, why? Armed with that information, if somebody comes in and wants to give you something that you didn't think you were supposed to be getting, you could mm -hmm. say, gee, I didn't think that was on the list of what I should be getting, or that dosage is, uh, is not for me. My mother-in-law 
was in uh, assisted living, or no, I guess it was rehabilitation. She was in rehab after having been in the hospital. And uh, a nurse came in to give her medication that, um, they, that should be given to her once a day, but it was like the second time they were coming in mm -hmm. to give it to her. So if you can catch that, I think it did happen. They did give her too much, but it turned out it wasn't da a dangerous drug. So you know, just again, remember, everyone makes little mistakes. It's too easy to make mistakes. And the more eyes and ears are paying attention, uh, the more you could avoid it. And good healthcare organizations encourage patients to be part of the safety mm -hmm. process. Uh, just be nice about it. Um, tip number six, uh, on any given day, or let's say pretty much every day of the year, about one in every five hospital patients contracts an infection. Mm. Um, and the single easiest and most effective prevention is that uh, the caregivers need to wash their hands before they touch you or something uh, that's going to be given to you. Uh, that turns out to be a much bigger problem than it sounds like. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had, you know, they're, when they're with patient number 14, and they, need, they wash their hands before patient 14. And now before they come to you, patient 15, mm -hmm. they need to wash their hands. That's a lot of hand washing. That doesn't, it's, a, it's a big annoyance and an awful lot of caregivers cut corners, skip it mm -hmm. now and then. So uh, one of the easiest ways to prevent infection, it's not the, I mean, there are a lot of ways to become infected, but there are a lot of hospitals, a lot of, germs in hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, you could, if you don't see your caregiver wash his or her hands, you could suggest, you know, you could say, uh, I just want to remind you, you might not have washed your hands, so please do. Um, seven, tip number seven in the hospital, be uh, during the pre-op procedure, uh, someone, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, someone will talk to you mm -hmm. about uh, you and are you prepped? Um, and like when my uh, eye doctor, my eye surgeon, was going to do my cataract surgery, uh, I wanted to make sure that he and I remembered which eye was <laughs> getting it. Uh, so during that pre-op procedure, if, if someone from the care team has not said to you something like, now, can you tell me what you're here for today? Uh, what procedure are you getting? And which, you know, is it the left arm, the right arm? Mm -hmm. uh, if they have not asked you, you uh, should ask them to verify which arm, which breast, which brain hemisphere mm -hmm. uh, is being operated on and make sure it is clearly marked. 
nowadays uh, it is typical to write on it. Uh, this mm. this one. Uh, <laughs> I love that this one. <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> or whatever it is they write on it. Uh, there was a time when doctors, cons surgeons considered that insulting, mm -hmm. as if they would mix up left and right. But it's happened often enough that now they do take a marker and mark it. Uh, and then let's, uh, let's assume everything went just fine and your problem was dealt with safely, effectively, and you are now being discharged from the hospital. Um, tip number eight is to be sure to follow your after hospital care instructions. Uh, nurses typically give detailed packets of instructions to patients as the time approaches for them to be leaving the hospital. And you don't always go from the hospital to home. You might be going from the hospital mm -hmm. to a skilled nursing facility mm -hmm. or a rehab center, uh, or, and then eventually to home. And in each of those places, uh, they don't know what's been going on in the hospital. They don't mm -hmm. know what care you are getting. So the hospital gives you instructions to try to help uh, the next people who will be caring for you, which could even be family members, to do the right things in the right way at the right time. Um, and uh, particularly when you are at home and maybe family members are doing the taking care of you, you should have a list and it should be in those in that packet. So check and see if it is, but you should have a list of the names and phone numbers uh, that you can call if mm -hmm. something seems to be going wrong. Um, my sister will in the not too distant future be getting a kidney transplant. Mm. And I, what I have learned from that process is that when it happens, the hospital, and she goes home, the hospital wants a family member, mm -hmm. not a hired nurse, but they want a family member who will stay with the patient who just got the transplant. Uh, pretty close to 24 hours a day for four to six weeks. Their theory is that the family member will be able to detect mm -hmm changes in the patient that aren't normal for that patient, for that family member. And can and that might be a sign that the her new kidney is being rejected mm -hmm. by her body. And so the theory is that I will be able to get her back to the hospital faster than a, uh, a hired caregiver mm -hmm. so that they can try to save the kidney. So uh, home care uh, is an important part of it, all of which can be a little scary mm -hmm. because uh, when, when you get beyond changing a Band-Aid, uh, I've run out of knowledge and skill. Mm -hmm. 
So um, you might have to have visiting nurses and so on once you get home. Um, it, uh, tip number nine, uh, a lack of continuity of care. We've, I've sort of hinted at this with the previous one. A lack of continuity of care can be a serious problem in the transition from the hospital to the next place of care. Handoffs, they call this handoffs. Mm -hmm. When they hand off a patient within the hospital, they might hand you off from one part of the hospital to the next, or you're in, you're in surgery and then you're in recovery and then you're just going to be on a ward in a hospital bed or you're in the ICU and then you're handed off to regular care. Those handoffs are times when things can go wrong mm -hmm. because the next set of caregivers don't know what the previous set of caregivers gave, mm -hmm. knew and they don't know you. They're going to have to get to know you. And uh, that is where... Uh, where extra care should be given because even the caregivers, the old ones need to inform the new ones of mm -hmm. what, what your condition is and what the treatment for it is. And when you read the horror stories of what happened to patients, that is one of the key times when it happens. I was talking to some nurses from uh, a hospital you should be, uh, you might uh, want to know that there is, that one, one indication that the hospital didn't do uh, the job that it should have done with you is that you need to come back to the hospital for the same mm -hmm. problem to get further care. The, uh, the federal government through Medicare and Medicaid, which pays for a lot of hospital care, they a few years ago, they started the practice of financially penalizing hospitals if too many patients were having to come back within 30 days of the initial discharge. This could become costly for a hospital. Um, so uh, the hospitals didn't want to have to pay those penalties. So one hospital, some nurses told me that their hospital created a special group of nurses. Uh, I think they called them transitional care nurses. The hospital sent nurses at no charge to the patient, no charge to Medicare, to wherever the patient was sent to. And they would check up on things there and make sure that the transition was happening successfully and that the next place wasn't screwing up and creating a problem that would require you to go back to the hospital. Their goal was to keep you well and mm -hmm. recovering for 30 days. The moment day 31 rolled around, it was goodbye. The, these mm -hmm. extra nurses just disappeared, of course, because it's no longer the hospital's problem. But this business of trend uh, of continuity of care. Mm -hmm. When I was looking at how healthcare, especially serious hospital level healthcare is handled in different countries, 
the thing that really stood out to me was how European hospitals and healthcare systems, they had more trend, more, uh, more of this careful continuity. They worked harder at making these bridges work. I was giving a talk to a group of people once in a retirement community about matters mm -hmm. like this. And there was a retired surgeon in the audience. And he raised his hand and said, uh, he'd been a surgeon for 20, 30, 40 years. He said, not, not once in his entire career did he go back to the patient after his part of the treatment mm -hmm. was done. He did his surgery. They're off. Other people will take care of them. He didn't see them again unless they were readmitted because there was a problem. And that, I think, was an example of uh, our lack of continuity of care. We try to be very efficient, mm -hmm. not necessarily. Efficiency is not always the best thing. Um, I'm down to my last handy tip if you're ready for it. I'm ready for it because I have a whole bunch of questions that will follow All up. Right. I'll figure out that you get your tips out of the way. <laughs> well, this tip is about opioids. Opioid, we're, we're now very nervous about opioids. They can be a very valuable pharmaceutical intervention. So if they are prescribed, don't be afraid to take them. But as we all know now, they pose a serious risk of addiction and you should only take them as prescribed, when prescribed, and then when you're supposed to not take them, don't. And if you are having trouble stopping, talk to the doctor about it. Get help in stopping. Okay, Melissa, I am open to whatever you want to ask. Okay, first thing that really like stuck with me is when you were talking about, you know, sometimes they were administered when you were talking about what your mother got or your mother-in-law got two, two doses at one time or that same day got two doses yes. of medicine. Yes. Got me thinking about how many times these patients go in and a doctor prescribes one medication, not realizing the side that it might interact with a the medication they're already on because they're not telling the doctor everything. So it's important that they bring other medications with them. Correct. Yes. Um, and the hospital ought to find out before you get there. Now, if it's an emergency, they're not going to be able to. But uh, the, they should be asking you or uh, obtaining your records. And uh, they can find out what all those things are. You're quite right. And then they don't want the patient to bring in any medications from outside because that creates the risk that you're going to take your own and then they're going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but on this point about them knowing about you, knowing uh, what prior surgeries you've had, knowing what uh, allergies you have, knowing what medication you're on, there is something that has uh, been developed in the United States and I'm assuming other countries uh, called health information exchanges. Mm. And that uh, is where there's a centralized, basically a computer. And 
it, within a state. They're basically based state by state by state, and now they're trying to get the states to talk, have their computers talk to each other. But hospitals and individual doctors can join up for this. Mm. And then their patients' records uh, can, a patient gets to say, depending on the laws of the state, the patient gets to say, no, I don't want you sharing my records with mm -hmm. this health information exchange. But if you don't say no, then they will have it there. And I think it's a great thing because if I get some care from Dr. A, and then six months later, I go see doc a different doctor about a different problem. If both of them are connected to the health information exchange, I don't have to fill out a new medical history, mm -hmm. answer a million questions, try to remember every pill that I take. They can get on there. The next doctor can get mm -hmm. on their computer and find out. Or if you go skiing uh, somewhere and you far from home and you break your leg and you're in the hospital there, if that hospital is connected to your health record, they'll know all kinds of things about your health conditions without having to guess or without having to ask you about it. Um, so anyway, that's a long answer, which all adds up to yes. But I love that because then they are able to check and see if the, the prescription that they're going to prescribe to you, especially if you're in a doctor's office and you can't remember everything, every medication you're on, they can look and see if there's, it might interact with another medication or, oh, you're on this. Well, you shouldn't be on this. And they can take off medications as well. Yes. Yes. Okay. The next one I have is. You mentioned about having to take care of your sister. What do you suggest as far as caregivers go? Do you suggest they go through like some sort of kind of tr general training? Well, I don't know about the general training. I think uh, if it's something like my sister's transplant, uh, they had the hospital she's going to have it at. They give classes mm -hmm. before before you do it for that specific thing. And uh, I think they will, I'm assuming that when she's ready to be discharged with her new kidney in a couple of months, I think it'll be, um, that they will educate me in what I need to do. Um, so I don't know that you need to go to school and become a, a part nurse, but I think a good health care provider, a good hospital, mm -hmm. will take the time to teach the home caregivers what they will need to know for this patient, um, as, as opposed to just saying, okay, uh, we're going to wheel you out of here and goodbye and good luck. Yeah, because they don't want to. And I think partly it's because of this readmission problem. They do not want to see you coming back in the next 30 days because that could end up costing them money. So in a way, that's a very good uh, penalty that uh, the government has uh, decided to impose. 
You also mentioned something about, you know, mentioned about transitioning, like when you're transitioning from the hospital to either a rehab center or a nursing home or home. But I also want to mention the transition of the shifts, the changing of the shifts that sometimes the nurses put down that they did something and they didn't do something or they did it and they didn't write it down. Not to say, you know, because it's all human error. They may have thought that they had actually wrote it down when they in their mind, they did it. But in actuality, they didn't. Or maybe the doctor had put an order in, but he didn't press submit, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So let's talk about you know, how we can be vigilant during the tra- changing of the shifts. Well, that might be another occasion for having your assistant, your family or friend uh, who stays close with you and takes notes. They, so the hospital has its set of nursing notes, but you'll have yours too. And those could come in very handy when you're now, when the next shift arrives and, and maybe they want to come in and give you a certain medication and you say, uh, which, what medication is that? And they tell you and you say, uh, well, uh, my mother got that uh, two hours ago be on, before the shift change. So you'd be in a position to do that. Uh, I mean, nobody wants to screw up and yeah. hurt a patient. It's all just little, little slip-ups. Why do you think that they're, these little slip-ups happen? Is it because they're overworked and they're tired? Or it's just that some of them are, honestly, some of them are careless. I understand that. But, you know, there are some people that are super vigilant about what they do and they still make mistakes. Well, it's certainly true that we all differ in our care, our attentiveness, our attentiveness, um, our our own health and tiredness. If you're, if you have a caregiver who just had a few uh, bad nights uh, of sleep and they're just not sharp, that can happen. One of my biggest worries about what's been going on with COVID is that hospital workers are exhausted. Mm -hmm. They've worked so hard, so long uh, that Anybody and everybody who's in a hospital is at greater risk now than they were before, just because there have been so many more patients. Um, but uh, the the at least the theory among there is something called a patient safety movement within the healthcare industry and beyond. I suppose, in a way, I'm part of that movement. But the the patient safety movement uh, has been looking at other industries. And they've seen that other, if you think about other industries, let's say manufacturing, manufacturing factories used to have many more worker injuries. Mm -hmm. If you go back a century, Mm -hmm. or 120, 30 years ago, Factories used to have lots and lots of errors, and they would blame it on the worker. They'd say, you didn't pay close enough attention when you put your hand under that drill press. Uh, so it was, so they, would, they tried to train the workers to be more careful. 
what they eventually figured out was that the problem, the real solution, the heart of solving the problem was to design the system so mm -hmm. that it was hard to make a mistake. So instead of saying, every time you put something under that drill press, remember not to let your fingers get under there. Um, so, you know, that's got to think about that all the time. Instead, they started designing machines in ways that you could, it would not run. I mean, a simple version of this is instead of pushing one button to make the drill run mm -hmm. work, you had to push two buttons on opposite sides of the machine mm -hmm. so that you get everything in position, you set it to go, and then you got to take your hands out of the way and push the two buttons to make it work. So that's a way that you can, by designing a system to be safe, uh, you can make it harder for people to screw up. And that is, and the patient safety movement feels that that will be the ultimate and best solution that we have. So for example, let's take, uh, well, the doctor who gave an adult dose of morphine mm -hmm. to the two-year-old. If that doctor had to scan the morphine, there's a barcode mm -hmm. on the morphine. So a computer knows everything. The computer knows what this child's problem is. The computer knows the kid is two years old. And the computer sees you are now scanning. Oh, and the reason the doctor will scan the morphine is that's also going to put it on the bill. So mm -hmm. everything you do and everything you give the patient, you got to scan it, scan the barcode so that it gets on the bill and everybody gets paid by the insurance company. So the doctor goes to scan it and the computer will notice what the doctor, what the doctor lost sight of for a moment. Mm -hmm. and the computer will set off some kind of an alarm that says, whoa, are you sure you want to do this? So that would be an example of putting our modern information technology, computer technology to work to make it harder to make mistakes. Uh, I have kind of a dream that uh, you may have heard of Google Glass. Google created some glasses that they didn't go over too big. It was kind of a flop. And so they're trying to find other, this was a few years ago. Uh, I think it would be like, uh, like jet fighter pilots can mm. see uh, information kind of floating out there in space. It's on mm -hmm. their goggles or uh, so that certain information, uh, the computer could put certain information on those glasses. So I have this dream that, and you know, it's, this isn't much science fiction. We're close to this. Nurses will wear these special glasses. They walk into a patient's room and, and the Google glasses, the computer will put on there who the patient is, what the patient's mm -hmm. problem is, and what it is the nurse is supposed to be doing for that patient at that time. 
And that, so the, instead of the nurse having to carry all this information in his or her head yeah. or check the chart or mm-hmm. check the, the whiteboard in the patient's room, you know, always checking, check, it'll just be put right in front of them. And uh, if they already knew the right thing to do, great. But if, if the special glasses mm-hmm. say it's something else, the nurse can stop and say, whoa, let's, let's double check what's going on here. So systems redesign is going to be the big solution Mm -hmm. uh, in the long run. You mentioned, you know, the quality checks for hospitals and doctors, but what about rehab centers and nursing homes? Is there a way that you can check the ratings for them as well? I think um, Medicare and Medicaid, which is also known as CMS, Centers for Medicare. I don't know why they don't have two M's in there but it's CMS. I believe their website also has nursing homes and rehab on that website. Wow. You've certainly left, it filled my head with lots of information. I mean, it's swimming right now with all these information. I mean, some of these tips are very simple and like, you know, no brainers and others are really in depth. And, but I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share these tips with us. Is there one last little nugget that you want to share? Um, I'm not sure there's anything that we haven't covered. Okay. So tell people where they can find you at and the name of your book again. Um, well, if anybody wants to get, get a hold of me, if you Google my name, Arizona State University, well, there you have it. Go to the university. You could find my email. You could get in touch with me. Uh, if you are interested in our book, uh, Closing Death's Door, there's the Amazon link to it. Uh, and, uh, and I hope everyone stays healthy. So what is up next for you now that you've written this book? You're just promoting the book or do you have another book like in your head trying to figure out? Right well, now? you know, the thing, uh, I don't have another book in my head. Writing a book is uh, kind of a burdensome thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting, I'm getting up there in years. What I, so I'm, I'm writing articles. What I am trying to do now is collect uh, these ideas for mm-hmm. prevention, and particularly the systems ideas. Are there things that hospitals, the larger healthcare system, the legal system, what are ideas for things that could be done mm-hmm. uh, that could contribute to this systems improvement? So that's my current project, collecting those things and then writing articles about them. Uh, I could give you an example of one of those. Go right there, there is, um, if you think about the incentives that a hospital has to prevent error, the, they, they really don't have a lot of incentive. Suppose I were the CEO of a hospital. And I got together with the board of directors. We said, you know, we'd like to make our hospital the safest hospital in the state. What would that take? 
we would have to hire people or consulting firms. We'd have to make lots of changes. We would have to invest a lot of money and a lot of time. And the people already working in the hospital would end up having to learn new ways of doing things or working with different equipment, using different procedures. This is a big, time-consuming, expensive project. And what would our reward be at the end of that from a, from a business viewpoint? The reward would be to make less money. Because when things go just right, and the hospital and the doctor charge X dollars for it, Mm -hmm. they get X dollars. When things go wrong, they get to charge X dollars plus Y dollars and maybe Mm -hmm. Z dollars. So if if they start getting everything right all the time, they're going to make less money. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a screwed up incentive. So one idea that people have had is to tax hospitals. Um, we could call it a patient safety tax. And they would be taxed in a way that reflects the amount mm-hmm. of screw-ups, the amount of harm that they accidentally do. And that as they improved their procedures, the tax would go down. If things got worse, the tax would go up. So that they now would have a business reason Mm -hmm. to invest more in safety. They want to lower that tax, Mm -hmm. keep more profit. And the way to do that would be to make things safer. And what would the government do with the money they got from that tax my answer would be they need to reinvest that in patient safety mm-hmm. procedures. It all should be aimed at patient safety. So that's an example of the kinds of ideas that at least are floating around out there. That's kind of a really innovative idea as well. And I can't wait to, to see more things happening because it seems like every now Every day you pick up a paper where a child was switched at birth or there's been a medical procedure gone wrong. And I know the doctors and nurses are overworked right now because of COVID, because it seems like all of them are like, we're done, we're getting out. <laughs> but I want to really thank you for coming on and sharing these tips, because like I said before, some of them are really simple, easy tips to follow. It's just something that we don't think of when we have a loved one that's going through something. We're more focused on their emotional well-being and not their physical well-being. It's very stressful for everyone yeah. in the family. That is so Well, uh, you are very, very welcome. Uh, and I thank you. Right. So guys, I will put everywhere in the show notes where you can find Michael as well as where you can grab the book. And I highly suggest you check out the book because these are just, you know, these tips right here are so simple, so easy, but yet something you can do to save a life. Because I honestly think that if they had caught my sister's cancer earlier, because she'd been going back and forth to the doctor for a year, they kept attributing her not being able to breathe the asthma. If somebody had been really advocating for her and been saying, no, we're going to do something or getting second opinions, that she probably still would be with us right now. So, 
Well, I'm very sorry about uh, your loss of her, which obviously has been painful to you mm -hmm. for the whole rest of your life. That is so true. So, Michael, once again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Thank you, Melissa. It's been wonderful speaking with you. So, guys, be blessed. And remember, keep chatting. Have a great day. See you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Chats from the Blog Cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.